It's a beautiful new week and you are welcome to the Green Living Chat Podcast. My name is David Osimensa and I'm your host on this podcast. And I'm super thrilled about today's conversation because we are talking about nature-based solutions in the water sector with Dr. Nora Van Kawamej. Nora is an expert in water and sustainable development with experience in academia and private sector on integrating nature-based solutions and green infrastructure in basin, city, and building planning and design. Central to her work is the connection of communities, government, businesses to identify the opportunities for greening the economy. She has positions in VUB, Belgium, and IHE Delft in the Netherlands where she teaches various water management topics. She is the co-founder and lead business development green solution at Beta Green, an award-winning startup specialized in assessment of urban climate risk and nature-based risk reduction. And in today's exciting conversation, we looked at trending issues in water scarcity and challenges around the world and some of the insightful solutions we can do to reduce water scarcity around the world. Our conversation centered on what integrated water resource management and nature-based solutions are and their role in solving the water challenges we have around the world. Building synergies for change in response to climate change and our own actions in the water sector and most excitingly what she is leading her team to do at Beta Green in Belgium. This is an exciting conversation, super excited about what we discussed and as a water engineer, I am so thrilled to share this conversation with you. So if you are ready, just grab your coffee and I will see you on the other side. This is the Green Living Chat podcast. Here, we define sustainability, educate, and discuss feasible solutions to achieve a regenerative ecosystem. In a world where sustainability has become a cliche and misused in practice, we bring you inspiring stories from the industry, research and development, and all stakeholders in between. And together, we can promote the sustainability agenda across the globe. This podcast is proudly produced and sponsored by our team at Echo Amid Solutions in Ghana. We come your way with new episodes this and every Sunday at 6 p.m. GMT. So dear Green Chatters, let's get started. Hello Nora, thank you so much for joining me today on the podcast. It's exciting to have you here and I am thrilled to dive into today's conversations about your expertise and things you're doing in the water sector and nature-based solutions. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks, David. Absolutely lovely to be here and have this conversation with you. Yeah. So if you've heard a lot of things about Nora in the introduction of this podcast, you should know that we are in for a treat today. So we really want to dive into her life a little bit, you know, get to know her more, hear it from her own mouth and then dive into some of the solutions and such an amazing person she is um, and what she's doing to save the world. So um, I'm sure a lot of people would like to know deeper, I mean, how you grew up and everything. But there is this interesting question that I've been asking people lately, and I'd like to ask you as well. What really brings you happiness? Oh, nice. Um, 
I think uh, being around uh, nice people is definitely my number one, just like human connections. I think surprised by things that other people bring into my life. But I also really get happy from nature, you know. I'm an avid uh, water freak. Like I like to swim, I like to surf, I like to windsurf. Wow, and, uh, who knew this? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, being at the sea, just seeing nature, I think it's just amazing. So, yeah, those would be my two, my hmm. top two. Wow, that's a very interesting question. I like the way you put it, and it's very interesting. Hmm, something to learn over there. Well, <laughs> I got to meet you for the first time in um, a webinar. I've actually forgotten the title of that webinar, but you gave a presentation on water solutions and nature-based solutions and all that. And I got really interested because I'm a water engineer and um, I'm very, very enthused about the water sector and solutions that we can bring in. So now that you're here, I think I have the best opportunity to ask you about how you got into these things. But before then, how was your childhood growing up and what are some of the things that you can remember that triggered that okay, I wanted to get into water. I wanted to get into academia. I wanted to even start an organization to save the water sector. Do you remember anything from your childhood that sort of triggered this or you think it's something that you came across by chance? Well, I mean, no, I don't think it was really totally by chance. I have very like warm memories of my childhood, of, of the holiday season when we would be, you know, with my nephews and my cousins, we, we would be around swimming and, you know, being in the water or doing big walks in the mountains. And I, I think that was just like a really nice experience to be out and share that stuff with, with people you like and you have fun with. And um, I've always been excited about doing stuff. And, and I think if you can do stuff with nature, that's, uh, yeah, I think that's kind of a, where my passion like so yeah when I came to the point of having to decide what to study I actually hesitated a lot between bioengineering what I ended up studying and medicine okay and, uh, <laughs> yeah. and I think I would have absolutely enjoyed both but um, I'm very happy with the bioengineering I'm I just am amazed to know more about the natural world and mm -hmm. you know you can go into the details of the biochemistry or just like more holistically and so yeah I, I kind of ended up into water maybe that was a bit more accidentally but it's a very nice um, topic to work on because it connects so many other things and academia was also sort of that was maybe more accidentally uh, there was an opportunity and I I wanted to do, th do things that I liked with the freedom you know uh, that you can get professionally so yeah I thought that academia would be the good place to do that. Wow. Interesting. I love the story behind this. And it's very relevant to sort of share your story before we even dive into the story, uh, the conversation and get to know, you know, how did you get there and all that. But thank you so much for sharing that because I think it's really important. Now, the job that you love so much has gotten you to travel around the world. And I, I, I was reading your profile and you have worked with several people from different continents and I can imagine how you have been enriched and um, your eyes are really open to different cultures and all that. But today we really want to talk more about, you know, the water sector and the issues that are related to this. I want to ask you that with your experience working with a lot of people all around the world, 
what are some of the trending issues you have seen related to water scarcity or probably in the water sector? Is it that maybe people in um, Europe are facing different issues from people in Southeast Asia or in, in Asia on its own or Africa or in Central America? Are they different issues in different areas or you think there are certain things that are trending within these areas? Yeah, I find that's a very good question, David. I think for sure issues are different in in different places, but one thing that I do see as a general trend, and I think it's, it's a very exciting one, is that there's more and more access to knowledge and small scale technology and small scale solutions, and that more and more people are taking up a role. So I kind of can see a shift of of like this more top-down, very centralized management or technology systems, ecosystems of technology with different types of people involved and, and people also really involving them in the operation of things or the design of things um, that, that were previously not part of it. And I can see that in different places and maybe it's, it's happening more like in Asia or Latin America than it would be in, in the West. But I think actually that the West is picking up their is, is following suit. Yeah, because we need these kind of solutions. Of course, in terms of scarcity, this is becoming a general issue everywhere, right? There were maybe the spoiled nations that didn't have that uh, worry so much, but now yeah. it's everywhere. Every place that I am working in now is to some degree looking at scarcity. So even the countries with high rainfall, the, the, the system is so at its limit that they also have scarcity or the climate change is just making that there are certain periods of the year that they have to deal with scarcity, which they never had to worry about before. You made mention of something important. I think I would like to reflect just briefly on it. And so I've been having conversations recently about, you know, of course, solutions to climate change, water sector and all that. And one thing that has been, you know, sort of heading these conversations is innovations and technology play a very important role in this, of course, space. But then I had a conversation recently with an expert in um, Costa Rica here who are sort of monitoring biodiversity and the forest management and preservation and all that. And one of the challenges he mentioned was, you know, catching up with the technology or catching up with the softwares and programs and things that have been sort of frequently updated and sort of the updated ones are more efficient. With your experience in this area, how is, you know, the catching up also an issue? Of course, you mentioned that in, in the West, there's going to be more of education and they'll be up the, the list than um, other countries. But how is this challenge your relevance in some of the places that you have um, worked in? I think it's very, very relevant. And I, I, I think it's something that is maybe sometimes overlooked, right? The importance yes. of building capacity to, yeah. to be able to take the advantage of innovation that exists out there. Yes. To a certain extent, I think there's a lot of autodidacts out there. And, yes. and therefore <laughs> the internet, of course, is amazing. And there's yeah. so many smart people who just, you know, find their way. But but still, I, I think it's a little bit not paid enough attention to. Yeah, so I, I do see it as a bit of a, of a weak spot or maybe a need for innovation really to, to get to its full potential. This is something we have to invest in. I'm actually glad that you highlighted that because I think it's something that needs a lot of, you know, investment and attention so that we can sort of 
yeah, build that kind of capacity for others to also get um, access to these facilities and technologies and all that. But then, of course, one of the main areas that can help to boost this is bridging the gap between academia and the industry. And this is something that you are playing a very, very important role in. And I'm very, very super privileged to be talking to you about this. Um, just our last episode that we, we released on, on the podcast was also someone who is doing such an amazing work also in uh, materials industry, but bridging the gap between academia and the industry. And he made very relevant you know, contributions to the importance of the gap between the industry, uh, the two industries. And I would like to, of course, ask you for the space, in the water space, what are some of the challenges you have seen in bridging the gap between academia and, and the industry? And what are some of maybe the milestones that you can be happy about? Let's say we were able to do this and do this. And since you are able to speak both languages, you understand both sides that maybe the industry might be doing something that academia doesn't understand, or probably the academia has done something that the industry cannot really um, cope with it. Or academia is bringing solutions that the industry needs to adapt and other things. I mean, of course, the question I'm trying to ask is, how relevant is this bridge? And what do you think are the challenges that you've been able to overcome? Yeah, that's a, it's a very big question. <laughs> and uh, I, will, I will try to, I will try to answer. I have a lot of things to say about that. I mean, for me, I think noticing the gap was a, was a bit of a frustration or like mind boggling to see how yes. big that gap actually is, no? Mm -hmm. And um and yeah, I mean, bridging the gap is, of course, important. The two have a very clear function. As you say, there are certain things that yes. academia does that industry cannot do and vice versa. But it's such a waste, you know, to see that there's mm. a lot of good ideas out there that just don't get implemented because they're so disconnected from reality or nobody is there to explain them properly and to adapt them to the context. So one of the things that I've been doing around that is to like participatory work. Yeah. So in, in the water world and specifically, uh, we would do processes on discussion div divisions of water with the stakeholders together, you know, looking at the models together, using the technology together. Um, because if people are given a decent explanation, they can understand a lot, you know, there's like this idea of, okay, we're the experts and you are the, you are the users. I, I, I really don't like that division. I think everyone is, can be an expert. And, and I think it's, there's so much to learn from each other. So, so I would see it as, as really a team effort. And in some places we managed to really create that kind of spirit, you know, that, that, uh, farmers we're working with people from the municipality we're working with people from the water utility um, that you know they need to know that there are changes in technology will be people will want to pay for it or people will want to use it or people will want to maintain it so i think there have been quite some positive experiences out there it takes the conviction that it is necessary I really love the points that you raised here. And I think we can talk about this like forever. And um, <laughs> and it's it's really exciting the things that you mentioned in here because these are very practical, you know, 
um, issues that are um, happening. One thing that I just wanted to just hit upon here and what you mentioned about such a waste that we have in, in the sense that we have so much solutions that people are working on. PhD students, master students, bachelor students are coming in and out every year from the university and every single of them has a peculiar study that they are working on, which are potential solutions to problems that we have in our everyday lives. But how come we are not able to bridge them, the gap and translate all these theses and papers and articles into, you know, um, solutions for the industry? Um, enough of that. Let's dive into the conversation. So integrated water um, resource management has become one of the leading things that you see online right now. There are so many issues here and there surrounding this because they are very complex thing that we're going to unfold today. But all these things are sort of solutions that have been proposed because of climate change and its impact on the water sector. And I just want you to highlight a little bit to our listeners, let's educate them on what's the impact of climate change generally on the water sector. I know it's a very broad area, but maybe you could select um, just a few areas and just highlight just to throw a little bit of light on how climate change has impacted the water sector and why there is a need to sort of find solutions to this. Yeah, yeah, of course. Well, I mean, I think one of the issues is the scarcity. The impact of climate change is, is increasing scarcity and, and with that more competition over resources and with that more potential conflicts, but also more incentive for cooperation. The other thing is, is kind of the intensity, you know, the distribution of the water resources and the changes in the variability. So becoming more intense rainfall events, more intense drought events, and which makes that, that the system is, yeah, is becoming more under stress, both in general, but also like the peaks of stress are higher. And because we have not really at all cared about building resilience in our systems, we've just tried to max out the exploitation of resources. Now this has to be turned back. Right. And yeah. we have to find a balance between, OK, still being able to use the resources, but to having resilience in the system. And I think that is where, yeah, where we're all now have to work on and how you can do that without losing too much. Right. Because it means that we will have to give up certain things that, that we took for granted until now. Exactly. Wow. You ended it on a very interesting spot. And um, I think it's, it's going to lead us to the next question. But um, you mentioned that, um, of course, water scarcity and the population growth and the stress and the, the impact of climate change has actually, you know, brought us to a certain level where we are like, okay, in as much as we need to sort of um, have mitigation measures and all that, we also need to adapt because we are not at a point where mitigation is going to take us out of, you know, the fire we find ourselves in. Um, what are generally integrated water resource management? What is this all about? If someone hears this, what should be the first thing that will come to mind? And Yes, yeah, so integrated water resources management is about the, the joint management of water and land resources over across sectors and doing that in a way that you kind of optimize or, well, they say maximize economic benefits uh, in, in an equitable distribution while also preserving the environmental integrity. 
So it's it's a very ambitious statement, right? And and but I think the key components of it is is to recognize that for water management to to be able to function, you need to look at these different sectors. There needs to be an integration. So the integrated is is like the most important word there. Whereas before, because you know, it was still possible that an industry would use their water and then discharge it. And then there was enough, you know, flow in the river or time for the river to, you know, purify that water until some fishermen were using the fish. And But now it's all so intense that everybody is stepping on each other's feet. And so that conversation has to happen uh, because, yeah, it's impossible to think that you're using the water on your island. And um, th that has been the biggest contribution, I think, of the concept of IWM. To be honest, in the meanwhile, a lot of people say it's impossible. We have to talk about something else. We have to talk about water security. But that element of conversation and of coordination remains. And, and that's, uh, that's really key. What, what I actually find very interesting about this concept is that the word integration, because I actually have no idea how the industry evolved to this level where we have sort of um, everyone was just thinking that they were just an island. And to the extent that we were actually putting too much emphasis on economic development and um, GDP and, you know, all those things that has to do. And we had to step on other people's shoulders and toes and get to where we, we, we are now. And now we look back and we realize that every single activity that we did had a very serious impact, not just upstream or middle stream, but downstream the entire stream. Everyone is feeling the impact right now. And I, at this moment, I don't even think we have to even start talking about water scarcity and other things because it's something that people are seeing and facing in their, their daily lives that people now have to sort of, you mentioned it about the competition and the stress on these water bodies and uh, few resources that we have, that now people have to migrate to other areas. But I love the idea of um, the whole system of management being integrated because now we have to get everyone in the conversation involved. But then um, I, I see another trend going on. I'm not sure um, because of course we have to let our listeners understand this, whether nature-based solutions are part of the system or is, is also a different system? What is the relation between the two and how relevant is nature-based solutions as well? I think nature-based solutions is a very interesting uh, concept that, that is now getting a lot of traction where basically we are looking back at our system and say, well, actually nature has a lot of ways <laughs> of, of managing <laughs> this water, right? And, and where we try to, again, um, restore or, or recognize the function of nature and you know there, there are there are definitely connections in the sense that if you if you acknowledge the, the role of nature in in providing resources and in providing ecosystem services i mean for if we now talk about water it's about providing clean water because there are wetlands or there are you know healthy rivers that have purifying capacity, but it's also yep. about providing um, a, a stable flow of water because you yep. have enough buffer in your system and you haven't put concrete everywhere. And so whatever rainfall <laughs> falls doesn't immediately flow away. Yeah. If, if you recognize that, then 
you are kind of looking at this idea of economic benefit and environmental integrity in a connected way. Yeah. And I think that's really the interesting point of nature-based solution. It's that there was always this dichotomy between, okay, we have our yeah. economic prosperity and then, oh, now we also have to do something about the environment, but it's only costing us money and I don't find this important. Let's focus on the economy, which of course is a completely ridiculous idea because <laughs> there is no economy without ecology. So I exactly. think that's the idea to, to bring them together and to also show and through the language you know of economics that this has a function and this brings benefits and and there are different people related to that benefit hi there just a quick one if you find our conversations worth listening why don't you share them with your friends and connections? Please help us reach more and new listeners by leaving a review, commenting, or rating us on any platform where you get your podcast. We can't wait to hear your thoughts and ideas, so share them with us via a social media platform or email. Find more details in the show notes. Now let's get back into today's conversation. I really love how you answer these questions because you bring them right into very tangible issues that we can see happening. And I can really relate with um, all the things that you're saying. But now to someone who is probably listening to this conversation and saying that, what are these two sort of nerdy people talking about? I mean, I cannot relate to what <laughs> um, they are talking about. Yes. If we take a typical example from, um, let's say I'm from Ghana. So in my country, we have one of the emergence issues that is with something we called galamse, and it's a local word we give to um, illegal mining because gold and you know all those kind of things are very um, common in in some areas of the country, and people are actually mining these kind of things illegally. And the impact that we see is on our water bodies. So this is someone from a local region listening to this podcast knows that okay, our river bodies has been polluted very miserably now the turbidity is high the river has changed colors the old people can tell you that what happened to this water we used to go here for you know um to rest and enjoy the scenery and everything what are nature-based solutions to this river and how relevant is what we are talking about to this particular river if we talk about water quality then nature-based solutions you know would be for example a wetland exactly. an area where the water can go there reside there for a while it's in contact with plants there are all sorts of microbes and uh, all, all the stuff that lives in the water and that <laughs> eats stuff and yes. transforms it into other things and and that has an amazing purifying capacity and of course i don't have to explain you david because you, you're working on on water treatment but there's so much that nature does on itself in terms of treatment. Mm -hmm. um, so nature-based solutions would be to, to find out what nature is doing in terms of improving water quality and, and bring that to this river or to this water body that is polluted. And so it could very concretely uh, become that you are installing a wetland mm -hmm. uh, and let the water flow in there so that it can again have some time to clean itself up and then flow back into, into the river 
and and then hopefully yeah restore indeed it's it's such a beautiful image that you yeah. that you that you paint and also a painful one i mean imagine for for a person to to look at that river and remember yeah. like oh i used to swim here and what happened now so i i think really honestly like as as generations or as a society i cannot imagine that that we're going to continue down this road we have to reverse is that we should be looking at the river and say oh it was such a <laughs> it was so it was so polluted when we were young and look at us now we're dipping exactly those so wow yeah that's a very interesting statement to say because now the common statement is well it was clean and now it's bad it would be very interesting for us to sort of look back again and say that, well, it was polluted, but now is is really good. Yeah, that's a very encouraging statement to say. Yeah, I must say one of the, the nicest conversations I, I had with, with some of my colleagues in, in Bangladesh was around that. And, you know, in, in I, I was working in Dhaka and you go to the river and it's so polluted and it's, it's easy to get desperate, no? To think, oh yeah. my God. And then, you know, the challenges of the country and... and but then this guy was telling me, yeah, but you know, Nora, like back in the 70s in Amsterdam, it was so dirty, the, the <laughs> canals, like, and I know because he used to be a windsurfer and he would always get stuck with his, with his board and whatever yes. crap that was in the water. Uh -huh. And he said, and it has really improved. So just to, as an idea that it's really possible. And I find it so nice that he said it because in that moment yes. I was getting slightly depressed. <laughs> so I think that this is also important, yeah, in this conversation, because of course, if you're working in the environmental sector, I think the moment is, it's easy to get a bit anxious. Um, yeah. There's climate anxiety, you know, most of the issues are going worse, mm -hmm. but uh, we have to know that it is possible to reverse, you know, we have to capture that energy to, to actually do it. Yeah. Having such conversations actually is very important to help us to know that at least uh, we can brainstorm ideas on how to move forward and, and everything. And one thing that I'm very, very, very proud of, uh, Nora, is that you are not just doing the academic work. And as we mentioned earlier, you're on both ends of this industry and you have your organization that is um, Beta Green that is doing such an amazing work. Of course, you are here to sort of highlight a little bit of how you guys are translating all the things that you know in terms of skills into solutions to help. What is Beta Green and what are you guys uh, sort of doing in this space before we go back into nature-based solutions again? Yeah, so so Beta Green is a, is a spin-off of a university in, in Belgium that focuses on green infrastructure in mm -hmm. cities to help them prepare for climate change, basically. And what it means is that we know that if you put green roofs in a city or you put, you know, green spaces, they have so many functions that can help to get your climate more livable. Yeah? Yeah. So, so what we do with the company is from a modeling perspective, we do an analysis of the city and we see you know, what is the current climate risk in terms of temperature, in terms of rainfall events, and how can we use green infrastructure to buffer and to make the temperature go down and make the water flow slower so that we don't deal with floods. And so we use all that modeling and all that knowledge about nature-based solutions or green infrastructure here. I mean, I'm using these terms um, uh, synonymously. Yeah. And we show how much benefit you can actually get out of installing that green infrastructure. 
So yeah, this is very exciting. Um, we recent we started recently, and um, it's very nice conversation. We're talking to some cities who are dealing mm. with that climate risks and who definitely see you know this they see the potential for a green infrastructure, but they just want to have a bit you know support of how much they have to build it and where exactly. And so that's what we that's what we offer with our assessments. Hmm, that's it. it's it's very exciting what you're doing because it's very very practical and it, it actually reminds me of so a company that recently engaged with uh, my consulting company about um they want to build like an eco community and it's like a whole vast of land um and it's proposed to have you know about ninety buildings in that community but they want to convert into a very eco community where they have you know biogas systems and solar panels emerged and they don't want to touch the land and destroy it with construction in a way that the indigenous crops are going to die and everything. And I think you will be a very good um, person to speak to this uh, client about how to, you know, sort of combine their infrastructures with, you know, the natural area and how to make it, you know, more sustainable, right? And not, you know, touch. and what I love about your work is you're not just using nature-based solutions to sort of um, make the place look nice or make the impact a little bit low, but you're considering everything that is integrated in that system in the sense that, well, now we have so many buildings. If you look up from a plane or probably the sky is a drone or something, and you look down into the cities, now you realize that, where you see all the browns and the whites are like just buildings and you can't see any greens in our midst. So wherever you see the greens are like places where people do not live. But how can we make, you know, where people live also green with, with your approach? And I, I really love um, what you're doing. Um, how has the response been? And of course, I know that this brings you a lot of satisfaction and <laughs> happiness when you talk to clients. But how has the reception been? I know there are a lot of countries like Singapore who are leading in greening their communities and uh, city centers and all that. But how has the response been? How do clients feel about this? Is it more expensive for them? Or do they sort of willingly come and say that, okay, we want to adapt these kind of solutions? Because of course, I know that most of the time sustainability approach is more expensive. So how has the response been generally? Yeah, more and more people are really interested in it, not um, because they truly believe that this is going to improve um, the city. It's going, developers are starting to really believe that it's going to improve their building. It's going to increase the value of the building so they will be able to sell it for a higher price. So yes, it is an investment, but um, what we are what we are hearing is that more and more players in that field, in that space, are seeing that it's going to be an investment that will get a good return. So I think what is kind of missing now is to, to, to be able to do this at scale. Yeah. So there's a lot of little ad hoc projects and, you know, somebody has a little fund and we're, we're going to put a little, you know, we're going to plant some trees and it's amazing. But to really have an impact on, on the city, this has to be happening at a larger scale. And there, these people, again, it's a bit the idea of the IWM, you know, we need to have this cooperation between the different players. And so if everybody says, okay, we will put a part of the investment and we do a part of the assessment and, 
and 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 give our our expert opinion on that this is a good idea. Then together, this this becomes an interesting project, and and so that's what we at least what the kind of products that we put in the market uh, have the intention to support that kind of conversation, where you have I mean to use the term it's like a blended finance uh, for for really bankable projects on green infrastructure at a large scale, and I think it will it will go into that direction. Of course, we are now very early start so we're still pushing uh, a lot but um, at least we, we get enough positive response to to believe that this is going to be yeah, that there will be a lot of future in it yeah that's that's exciting to hear and uh, definitely i think that uh, people also need a little bit of um, education on how to sort of willingly come in for such options because of its advantage not just to probably the economy or anything but also for the future environment because it's something that we all need to collectively come together and, and work on. One of the challenges that um, we also have, you know, um, we are proposing uh, constructed wetlands as uh, nature-based solutions for um, certain uh, wastewater treatment facilities. And always people want to see the traditional approach. They are not willing to sort of, you know, dive into the nature-based solutions. People need to be educated in this area to sort of, I mean, willingly come in for this because there are issues surrounding people coming in and say that, okay, we want the traditional systems, like let's say what you're, what, what you're talking about. I mean, some people might not prefer to come in for your solutions, but go in for the traditional ones. I think that's one of the last questions that I'll be asking you, but you made mention about something um, about all of us coordinating to bring these solutions alive. Um, we need a lot of stakeholders to come together to make this work. You as, let's say, a consultant who is working on this project, advising clients on what to do, we definitely need architects who also have to be in line. We need engineers who have to be in line, water engineers, civil engineers. We need everyone to coordinate even up to the, um, the client himself. What are some of the contributions that you think has to go into this in terms of education to sort of bring all these people on board? Because we realize that a lot of, most of the time, environmental engineers and few other occupations are the ones that are sort of narrowing themselves to um, this area of sustainability and even tapping into the nature-based solutions. But we don't get the other people from other industries diving into it and really understanding the essence of actually rethinking the operations to see how they can bring and incorporate these things. How do we coordinate these people and how do we also bring these people on board? Yeah, from the architectural world, there is quite some interest in, in going back actually to, to design that is in sync with nature. And there's a lot of innovation happen, happening there um, in terms of also the materials that are used, in terms of you know orientation of buildings, incorporating, all sorts of sustainable yeah, processes in the building for energy, for water use. So I, I think that that's a domain that's definitely moving nicely in the direction. I, I think also, you know, the, the young people starting those careers, I, I do see that more people are sensitive to this issue, no? I mean, we are all wondering how, how the world is going to look in, in 50 years from now. So most people want to like to innovate in, in, in that direction. Mm -hmm. So, so I think, I think it's, it's happening, but of course the, the problem, and actually I, I, I had a company on bioclimatic architecture before, and it was 
quite a challenge because we were building passive houses, you know, at the beginning of the movement. And the real challenge that we had is that you have all these established industries of constructors who do not really know how to do this. And for them, it's an absolute risk to to engage with this kind of new new way of building. So in that sense, yeah, the, the, the people that are out there also need to, to get support in, in making a transition. You, we, we cannot really wait for new people to st- yeah. stream into the system, right? Yeah. yeah. So how to engage with them? I think, I mean, it's a combination of top-down building codes have to force, and that, that's just it. And if there is a surplus cost, I mean, this has to somehow, or you, you show that, that people will earn back that investment because yeah. they use less energy in the building mm-hmm. or you have to subsidize it. There's no other way, you know? Yeah. And at least in Europe, there's a lot of funds going to go in, in that direction. I, I'm not quite sure in other parts of the world, but this is definitely the direction it's going to take to get the existing people. They have to change what they were doing before and that's difficult. It's, it's risky, right? So there has to be some support for that. Definitely. Yeah, really, really important uh, inputs over there. Um, so thank you so much, uh, Nora, for making time for this conversation. Uh, but before I let you go, I want to um, ask this last question about the fact that we've talked about nature-based solutions. We talked about, you know, integrated water resources, uh, management and all that. How applicable is it for people, um, the normal day person working or walking all around? What is that person's role in in all these um, ideas? I want us to sort of mention briefly, just uh, as a a sent home message, that what is the application? How can we apply this in our daily lives? And then you can conclude this with how people can partner with your organizations, of course, because I'm sure people will be interested in getting in touch with you to see how they can sort of collaborate in, in other areas. Yes, thank you, David. I think how this is everybody's business is, uh, if we think about nature-based solutions, I, I think just showing how nature is solving a lot of our problems is something that everybody can do. And I wanted to mention this earlier. I mean, there's a reason why people go sit under a tree when it's very hot, right? And we all know this. I mean, it's nicer there. But um, one of the the directions that that, uh, this field is also taking is to to have people communicate this. And there is a a lot on citizen science, you know, where people can have sensors or participate in programs or inform their you know, local politicians that, hey, I, I want to have a, another tree because, you know, it was much nicer in our street when that tree was still there. So I think it has, has to be a conversation where we jointly show the value, either just because you you know it and you just say it, or because you are going to walking be walking around with a sensor. And um, from Bitta Green, this is also part of the work we want to do because, of course, we are promoting green infrastructure because we say this has so much value, but then we also have to show this, right? So the showing part is where we will be working in this, you know, innovative monitoring where citizens can can say like, yes, uh, around this tree or in this street that had green infrastructure, uh, it was much nicer. The temperature was lower and the air was, I didn't have a whatever breathing issue. And uh, in this area where there are green roofs and it was raining very hard, we didn't have a flood this year. 
So I think this is this is why it it becomes everybody everybody's business yeah. because it's also the way we live. No, it's going to be our houses. It's going to be our neighborhood. So we're really benefiting from it. We're walking there every day, and so we can show it also. This conversation has really been nourished with experience and the insights that you've shared. I definitely am not going to get bored. Like you know. Um, going over this podcast um, conversation again and again because it's actually some one area that I'm very passionate about and I think I would really really love to listen to it again and again always um, but before I let you go <laughs> um, what does sustainability mean to you and what are you doing towards it it's probably something I should have asked earlier but I think it's the right time to ask sustainability for me would be if I were given a hundred square meters that I could put on a ton of square meters, everything I'm doing, everything I'm using, everything I am discharging. And that after 50 years, you know, with whatever technology I've supported, with whatever house I have paid money for, or whatever electricity company that I've been paying for, or whatever recycling stuff that I have introduced in my life, I can go back to that hundred meters and I can still find some peace of mind in it and it's not it hasn't become a dump so for me i, I think really it's, i i think sustainability really has to be something super personal you know we're all it's it's nice to think of it you're working on sustainability but you have to be sustainability right so i think it's a scary thought to be honest i, I don't know whether i whether i today i can say that i can live on 100 square meter and can go back after 50 years but i definitely want to try to to work toward that yeah wow this is very <laughs> this is very unthinkable that's a very interesting answer honestly like really i i am just trying to <laughs> imagine how that could be for myself i mean just leaving on that place and then going back yeah. again. That is a very, very interesting way to, wow. Wow. Interesting. Anyways. Wow. I can't stop reflecting on what you just said. <laughs> uh, but anyways, um, if you have the superpower to sort of change one thing about humans behavior towards the environment, what one thing would you choose to change? Throwing away things. I, I think that. The idea that when you throw something that it disappears i think that's <laughs> something that that would have to change that i would like to be able to change i yeah. don't know how but yeah that would be an awesome superpower yeah. yes <laughs> and i truly believe in that there is this man from czech republic michael rada who is promoting the idea of a wasteless world. So he thinks that nothing in this world should become waste if we don't waste it. So waste actually shouldn't be something that exists because we take resources from um, the earth and then we modify them into products and materials. And then afterwards, they are not supposed to be waste. They are supposed to be like, you know, go back, disintegrate them back into the resource that we took them. So nothing has to be waste. And when you mentioned that, that was the first thing that comes to mind because it is not necessary just to throw things away because they are practically the resource that we took from the earth, right? Yeah, it's a very interesting thing that you, I hope that you have that superpower soon because we really need that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm doing my best, David, every yeah. night. <laughs> On that note, thank you so much, Nora, for so much for your time. 
uh, for joining us today on the podcast. And definitely, of course, every detail of Nora is going to be on the show notes. So if you're listening and you're super excited about working with Beta Green or you just want to sort of get in touch with Nora for more insights, um, she is definitely available to sort of um, work with you. Of course, not that's available, but <laughs> I hope you can work something out with her and definitely get in touch with her. So thank you so much, uh, Dr. Nora, for joining us today on the podcast. Super nice uh, conversation, David, and I, I uh, definitely will keep an eye on, on your PhD and let's let's check in again in uh, definitely. some months' time. Definitely. <laughs> hey there. Thank you so much for sticking to the end of this episode. Now there is a call to action. So why don't you engage with our community of green charters on our social media platforms? Find more details and links in the show notes. Get involved with the podcast by emailing us at glcpodcast at echoamidsolutions.com or DM via our social media platforms. We cannot do the same things expecting different results. The agency of climate change demands actions now and not in 2050. So dear Green Chatters, see you on the next episode and remember, live green.